0: Hi, it's Fraser here. Before we get on with this week's Spiked podcast, I just wanted to tell you a bit about our new daily newsletter. It's called Today on Spiked. When you sign up, every weekday you'll get a roundup of all of Spiked's content, plus some exclusive commentary from the Spiked team, usually Tom Slater or myself. Spiked is producing more content than ever, and I know you want to keep up with all the fantastic articles, essays, podcasts, blogs, and interviews that we're publishing every single day. The best way to not miss a thing is to sign up to today on Spiked. It's really easy. Just go to spiked-online.com forward slash newsletters to sign up now. Now, on with the Spiked podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Spiked podcast. I'm Fraser Myers, and joining me this week, we have Spikes deputy editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And spiked columnist Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, the slow crawl out of lockdown, policing offence and Mexit.
1: We're now travelling on a one-way road to freedom. Boris Johnson has unveiled his so-called roadmap
0: for the gradual lifting of the lockdown in England. It is important to be cautious. We have to tread very carefully. We
2: need to be optimistic and not allow the fear of an additional
0: lockdown
2: to get in the way of lifting the restrictions as soon as we can.
0: Boris Johnson announced the UK's roadmap out of lockdown this week. Restrictions will be lifted in five-week increments – Schools and outdoor socialising will return next month. By April, the stay-at-home order will be lifted. Outdoor hospitality and attractions will reopen, as will indoor leisure facilities and non-essential shops. By May, most rules on social contact will be lifted. And by the 21st of June, the government hopes all legal restrictions will end, allowing for the return of nightclubs and mass gatherings. But questions remain about certain restrictions, such as social distancing rules and mandatory masks, And it also seems likely that new measures will come into force, such as COVID status certification, which could require either proof of vaccination or proof of a negative COVID test. Tom, I mean, what have you made of this announcement and particularly the pace of it? I think the
1: pace is glacial. I think we've all got a version of Stockholm Syndrome over the course of the past year, insofar as when you hear that you're going to be liberated in a mere four months or so, Mm. you almost start to feel quite happy about that fact. But it doesn't change how... Slow and how, in his own words, cautious Boris Johnson is being about this rollout. I mean, he says he wants to be led by data rather than dates, but the data in relation to the vaccines is very, very positive in terms of efficacy. Both Pfizer and AstraZeneca are outperforming expectations. Take up is outperforming expectations. We vaccinated the top four priority groups by the middle of this month. In a matter of weeks, we're going to have offered vaccines to the people who account for basically all of the potential deaths from COVID-19. And yet we're talking about months until we can get back into the pub, these lingering restrictions on our civil liberty, an announcement a couple of days ago saying that the government expects to allow us to use our best judgment in terms of shaking hands and hugging people by the Mm. middle of May. I mean, this is really quite absurd. And I think the thing that really has to be sort of underlined here is anyone who is surprised by this really needs to have a word with themselves because what's happened over the course of the past year is not just a decision to make specific drastic interventions in the face of a particular crisis. We've seen the precautionary principles, Brendan wrote about on on Spike this past week, basically take over. And the problem with that is it's a very difficult thing for government to shake. Now, obviously for Political reasons, as well as not wanting to make the mistakes previously of overpromising and under delivering, you can understand a measure of caution. But at the same time, the whole point is that once the vast majority of this very heightened risk that we were posed by COVID is wiped away by the vaccines, as it is being incredibly quickly, then you do have to go back to a society in which we're allowed to mitigate these risks for, for ourselves, to judge these risks for ourselves. And the slowness is is really concerning in that respect, because when the precautionary principle rules, as we've learned over the course of the past year, that can basically just mean the suspension of our civil liberties at the drop of a hat. And so for that to carry on, not just over the course of this year in relation to COVID, but as we've talked about many times in this podcast, this becoming a legitimate means of governing going forward in response to all kinds of crises, it's really, really alarming. So. The slowness is going to be bad for everyone, I think, insofar as how long it's going to take to get back to normal life. It's going to batter hospitality and many other industries who have been hanging by a thread as it is. But also, I think in terms of how we are governed, the relationship between the citizen and the state, this incredibly slow roadmap out of lockdown is is one symptom of just how much that's been rewired over the course of the past year. And that's going to be going to take a very long time to unpick.
0: Yeah, and it is worth reiterating, you know, just thinking about how long it's going to be until we're allowed into a pub. Now, that might seem like a very trivial thing, but the fact is that certain places in Europe are already more open than we are. You know, you can go to bars and restaurants in many parts of Italy and Spain right now, for instance, and they haven't vaccinated anything close to the amount of people we have. You know, this is not the action of a country that's vaccinated a third of its population. And, you know, it may well be that some of the modelling has spooked ministers and and the government into, you know, slowing this down. There have been some very crazy sage graphs going around, you know, which show between 2,000 and 5,000 people dying per day in August, even taking the vaccines into account, which is just insane. We had no vaccines last summer. Very few restrictions. There was nothing like this happening. I think that you could have easily laid out the same roadmap without the invention of the vaccines, and then probably going into more restrictions in in winter, of course. But you know, we've we've made this point many times on the show. It's worth repeating. The vaccines themselves cannot give us freedom. This is a political challenge, and vast sections of the establishment, as you, as you said, Tom, are beholden to the precautionary principle. And what's so strange about that? is that although once you've defined the thing you want to mitigate against, which in this case is COVID, then you can take any kind of drastic or reckless or schizophrenic actions in the name of a search for some quite illusory safety. Ella?
2: I feel a little bit more relaxed about the pace of the change of the roadmap. As much as we shouldn't be surprised that it's going to take a a long while, I don't think anyone imagined that we should return to Normal life, as it were, for what we knew life to be at the end of 2019 overnight. Because I mean, I feel sort of burnt by some of the things I was thinking about in November, December 2020. But of course, we've got the vaccine. And so the picture has changed in relation to COVID 19. I am not as down on the precautionary principle as I would be in other contexts, because I think, you know, you have to be sort of specific about. The time that we're living specific about this particular virus, there are still high levels of hospitalizations and a lot of people still pretty sick in hospitals across the country and so the you know the idea of a very quick opening up and the potential for either one new strains or two the n h s being overwhelmed is still I think a very real threat. but the frustrating thing is that everyone knows they're looking out the window. We're in London anyway. The weather's getting better and it's much easier for people to meet up outside, which is, in terms of the spread of infection, incredibly safe. It's much better to allow people to meet up with several households with, you know, not just limited to one person, to be allowed to sit on a bench and talk and have a coffee or a pint to prevent people from being forced to go back indoors. I mean, open up and allow people to play sports, to hang out outside, to do all these kinds of things. That could happen tomorrow and there wouldn't be any problem with it. But the frustrating thing about this is there seems to be actually, I think on both sides, a kind of black and white approach to this. And in particular, the government has for a long time had a very unnuanced approach to how to deal with the virus, which is kind of allergic to any kind of flexibility, any kind of informality when it comes to how to deal with it. But the threat of the fourth lockdown or the threat of future lockdowns, it insinuates that there can be no flexibility in this moving forwards. And that is a dangerous precedent because, of course, there are some things that are sensible I think bringing back schools are very sensible. I also think giving the bringing back of schools a bit of breathing time to see how it goes is worthwhile. But maintaining this kind of blanket approach, which seems actually to be a sort of, even though Boris Johnson's been down on it, a zero-COVID approach in the strict way in which the roadmap has been rolled out, is, you know, indicative of the way the government's acted for the last year and a bit now, which is just basically being hostile to any sense of nuance
0: in this. I don't know if government ministers are walking around London, but people are certainly meeting up (laughs) where no matter what they're telling pollsters, you know, this this is already happening. The idea that people are going to wait until ministers decree it can happen the, the sad thing is obviously to do with hospitality and businesses that are not allowed to open. Many people are obviously going about and breaking mm. the rules and adapting the rules to their to their lifestyles in, in ways that they see fit. And it seems, you know, absurd that anyone would, would deny that. I think the sad thing, though, in terms of the inflexibility that you're saying is that we're apparently the government will be flexible if things get worse, but not if things are optimistic. Mm. You know, all of these dates are at the earliest. All of them are prefaced with that when really there doesn't seem to be any basis for these five-week intervals. Why shouldn't they be brought forward? But, mm. you know, that has already been ruled out.
1: Also, just picking up on some of the points that Ella has made, I would, I would have a lot more sympathy with some of the points around caution if absent the vaccines, mm. I think, because if vaccines can't deliver us from this, particularly in a country which is basically, of any major, relatively large country, basically the best rollout in the world, if that's not enough to get us back, to normal in relatively short order, then literally nothing will be. We're not going to eradicate this virus, whatever some of the kind of zero COVID zealots might want us to, certainly not without all of us turning into China. And this has to be our way out of this. I mean, it's been striking. I think I'm right in saying that many of these measures within this roadmap are slower than us getting out of lockdown the first time around, absent the vaccine. That's correct, yeah. And this is something which I think is really, really concerning. And it's also so striking that... There's the questions around civil liberties. There's the question around the effects on the economy, hospitality, as you say. I think they lost about 660,000 jobs by the end of last year, let alone where they will be in four months' time after all of this. The pubs in London have been shut since, what, the middle of December? If you think about May as an opening up time, that's going to be pretty difficult for a lot of them to survive. But absent all of that, it is just that question of us being able to live as free citizens, to make judgments for ourselves, to be able to exercise those judgments freely. And I think in a country in which you're basically being told when you will be allowed to exercise your judgment is not a free country at all. And I think if Boris Johnson wants us to be cautious, then by all means, advise us to be cautious. Tell us not to rush out and to see people who might not be vaccinated. Tell us to, again, not go all out necessarily, but leave it up for us to decide because we have been living under this regime which again is unprecedented in human history. In response, yes, to a very serious once in a generation threat, but we cannot allow the long tail of this to become some measure of how this issue of COVID or any other issue is handled with the future, because otherwise we're going to be in in a very bad place.
0: Investing is one of the best ways to grow wealth over the long term. However, High commissions and clunky products from traditional stockbrokers can make it seem complicated for people to start investing. Meanwhile, trillion dollar investment companies get built, but very few people benefit from that wealth creation. Free trade is on a mission to change that by breaking down these barriers and by opening up stock investing to everyone. While other brokers charge up to £12 for every trade, free trade doesn't charge any commission fees, so you can invest and keep more of your profits. The award-winning investment app is used by over 250,000 people. It's authorised by the Financial Conduct Authority and protected by the Financial Services Compensation Scheme. Free Trade has won the award for best online trading platform at the British Bank Awards for two years in a row. Free Trade lets you buy and sell stocks, ETFs and investment trusts, all without commissions. The intuitive design makes investing simple for any experience level, beginners and experts alike. You can start investing from as little as £2. Free Trade doesn't offer any speculative products such as CFDs or spread betting, or products with leverage. And they don't do day trading. They're all about long-term investing with a transparent pricing model and no hidden fees or inflated spreads. You can sign up for a general investment account or a stocks and shares ISA. Or you can sign up to Free Trade Plus with more advanced order types and a bigger stock universe. Self-invested personal pensions are also being launched on Free Trade soon. When you invest, your capital is at risk, the value of investments can go up as well as down, and you may receive back less than your original investment. So, go to freetrade.io slash spiked, and if you register and fund your account, you'll get a randomly allocated free share worth between £3 and £200. Some of the shares you can win include Greggs, Rightmove or Apple. For more information, visit freetrade.io. And for the special offer, visit freetrade.io slash spiked. Earlier this week, Merseyside police paraded a new advert warning unsuspecting passers by that being offensive is an offence. The aim of the stunt, which was also promoted on social media, was to encourage LGBT people to report hate crimes. After an enormous online backlash, the superintendent at the Merseyside Police tried to clarify that being offensive was not in itself an offence. But many police forces seem to be devoting more and more resources into policing offensive speech and into encouraging the public to come forward to share their experiences of being offended. Around nine people are arrested every single day in Britain for posting grossly offensive messages online. And police have also logged over 120,000 non-crime hate incidents in recent years where people have said offensive things. Tom, you wrote about this this week. What are your thoughts?
1: Like A lot of the exploits of the police at the moment it's both authoritarian and absurd at the same time. So as you say, showing up outside of this Asda on the Wirral with this sign saying, being offensive is an offence is actually just part of a pattern of behaviour you see across different police forces. You know, we'll get into the question of um, the criminalization of speech and the cases that we've seen and all the rest of it, as I point out in the piece, even though, strictly speaking, being offensive isn't offence. There are many types of offensive speech that are an offence, so that distinction <laughs> is a little bit wobbly. But at the same time, it's a strange way in which almost the police are using hate speech laws or the threat of enforcing them as a kind of PR exercise, presumably to try and curry favour with various different groups who, for quite good reasons in many cases, are quite wary of them, whether it's the LGBT community or particular minorities or whatever. But you saw this stunt in Liverpool. There was that amazing tweet back in 2016 from Greater Manchester Police telling people to think before you post or you might get a visit from us this weekend. My favourite example was Gwent Police in Wales. It was a couple of years ago where they put up a mugshot of a drug dealer who had a very unfortunate haircut. Loads of people piled in to take the mick out of them. And presumably because they didn't like the fact that the thread was being hijacked so that people weren't giving information on this person's whereabouts. They warned all of the users there that being grossly offensive was actually (laughs) potentially a police matter. So again, you see them being, on the one hand, apparently, certainly in the Merseyside Police's case, not 100% up on the law, but also quite willing to use the threat of it to try and scare people or to grandstand. And I think this is just a reminder, though, that even though, as I say, this is kind of absurd, they've apologised for it, they've retracted it, it should serve as a reminder of how extensive our laws are If you think about all of the cases that we've discussed on Spite and on this podcast over the course of the past few years, they're absurd, many of them. You know, the whole Harry Miller situation, which was Mm. one of these non-crime hate incidents, which was logged against him, through to the Chelsea Russell case, which we've talked about, also in Merseyside, the teenager who had Asperger's syndrome put on a curfew for quoting rap lyrics on Instagram. That tit the other week who said something horrendous about Captain Tom after he died, he ended up being arrested over this. And so when you think about all of that, when you think about the estimated nine people a day who arrested for online speech, this is a huge problem. And whilst I think the Merseyside instance, because it was so utterly ridiculous and had to backtrack so quickly, served to give people a bit of a laugh as you saw the kind of literal PC police in front of you. The backstory to a lot of that is actually very, very sinister. And it's something that really, apart from on this podcast and on spike, doesn't seem to get talked about nearly enough.
0: It's funny because, you know, we were talking last week about, you know, free speech on campus and and often the response to that is, as we've said, you know, just nihilism, this problem doesn't exist. And then the other counter to that is to say, well, you know, this censorship isn't coming from the state, so it's not real censorship. But whenever you do point out that there is a hell of a lot of state censorship from the literal police, that also falls on deaf ears. I mean, in the UK, we have a terrible situation where we have communication laws forbidding people from posting grossly offensive things on the internet. We have public order laws, which prevent you from insulting people in public, essentially, especially you know when you're at a protest or things like that. And we have hate speech laws, which ban speech, which is considered to be racist, homophobic, transphobic, whatever. And those things are all pretty much determined by subjective standards. One person's hate speech is one person's deeply held belief. And it can end up in cases where disagreements over religion often, you know, it's often often Christian beliefs that end up getting caught in the net of the free speech things. Even the most daft kind of incidents, one of my favourites was, it's a very old one, It's about 15 years old, but it's still very funny when a, a student called a police horse gay and was arrested for it. You end up with the most absurd things that just because They upset the wrong person who could be overhearing, or you have a, you know, a grouchy police officer on duty that day that people end up getting arrested. So, yes, it was all very silly, and the Merseyside police made fools of themselves and everyone made fun of them online. But really, you know, the only answer to this is to really claw back some of these outrageous laws. Ella.
2: It's revealing how much the role of police has changed. And, you know, I was looking back through the way in which the police officers have acted over the years. And I found this great comment from it was about 10 years ago. It was at a time when, the, you know, there were clashes with protesters and police over the government cuts back in 2010, when we all were students. And there was this kind of panic about what public perception of the police was, was going to come out of this. And so he had said that the police had to move to stop being seen as an arm of the state and had to change the way that police officers acted and change the nature of policing was just one comment at one time. But the way in which the police is seen, particularly and used, particularly by politicians and by government, has changed because no longer is it sort of primarily seen as the enforcer of law or the Bobby that's going to come and crack heads when there's disorder in the community. With all the negative commentations that had from the past, very much now the police is trying to inhabit this kind of protective role. And so as Tom says, boast about the fact that the police become even more so involved in people's personal relationships, their private lives, in this kind of we're saving you from ourselves kind of position, in which, you know, it becomes for them then completely reasonable to trawl through people's Twitter feeds and suggest that something that they've said that is offensive should be stopped or banned and that they should be arrested for that. Because they've the role of the police has changed. No longer do we think or have this sort of quite healthy hostility to the police, you know, that you don't ever want to have a police officer involved in your life unless it's absolutely necessary, unless you are being robbed or attacked. But that they become the kind of friendly guardian who's constantly looking over your shoulder to see if there's anything wrong or to see if you've stepped out of line. One of the most pernicious ways in which this has happened is in relation to women and the push. It's slightly different to the question of thing, of banning things that are offensive, but the move to make misogyny a hate crime, for example, is centered around the idea that women should be protected by the police from harmful actions so it includes you know harassment and assault but also crucially words that you know hate crimes that are deemed to be misogynistic of people saying hateful or offensive things online or saying sexist misogynistic things online are a matter for the police. And what that, I mean, this sort of indictment on women's freedom and women's power and that is quite extraordinary. It's just like saying that rather than being independent citizens who don't need, as it happens, primarily male police officers watching over us, that we kind of become, we kind of inhabit the role of children in need of constant protection. And so, you know, it's terrible when people get locked up for this and it's terrible when people get arrested for this. But the thing that frightens me most is that there's this sort of, almost wholesale acceptance among some commentators and politicians that publics are so kind of pathetic and particularly minorities are so helpless that they need to have this new role for the police, this new protective parental role for the police. And I I feel like saying, well, what happened to the old kind of healthy hostility that said, we don't want the police in our private lives? That seems to have completely gone out the window.
1: I think it's worth underscoring just how extensive all of this is now. Because I think when people talk about people getting locked up for things they say, they think of people kind of spewing racist abuse or mm. you know demeaning an individual or a particular community. Now, as we've talked about, for reasons that we've gone into many times, hate speech, however odious, shouldn't be censored. But often the speech that people are getting criminalised for, these are literally victimless crimes. So we talked about that case of that gentleman being arrested over the Tom Moore tweet. His alleged victim was dead. You know, Mm. and so who could have really been mortally offended by this? So many of these cases, interestingly, essentially involve a police officer being offended. The Chelsea Russell case was like that. It was put in under the nose of some hate crime specialist who said, yes, this is offensive. And that basically formed the basis of a prosecution. You see this time and again, the gay horse example is another one. And particularly when you see the pushes to extend hate crime and hate speech legislation, we've seen a push from the Law Commission as well as the SNP as part of their hate crime bill, although the Law Commission have now dropped it, to criminalise basically dinner table conversations. Who is that inciting hatred against? Yeah. Who is that inciting violence against if something that is literally said behind closed doors? I think there you get an insight into how policing speech is essentially just about policing thought and enforcing conformity and a certain control over the individual, but also how we're much further down the rabbit hole of this stuff than anyone really wants to admit, particularly, as you say, Fraser, those left-wingers who claim it's only censorship when the state does it, despite the fact the state has been getting up to a hell of a lot of it over the course of the past 10 years.
0: You know what's not fair? The fact that Netflix hides thousands of shows and movies from you, just because of where you live. And then it has the nerve to increase its prices. That's right, Netflix has just raised its prices once again. Now you could cancel your subscription in protest, or you could be smart about it and make sure you're getting your full money's worth by using ExpressVPN, like I do. What most people don't realise is that the shows Netflix makes available in Britain or the US are completely different to what you can watch in Japan or Canada. Using ExpressVPN, I can control which country I want Netflix to think I'm in. ExpressVPN has over 90 countries to choose from, so every time I run out of things to watch, I just switch to another country and unlock new shows. Right now, I'm watching old episodes of Chappelle's show. It's not on UK Netflix, but with just one tap of a button, ExpressVPN lets me change my location to the US so I can watch it. And here's the best part it's not just for Netflix. You can use ExpressVPN to unlock shows on other streaming services too. American listeners can use it to watch BBC iPlayer, which is free and only available in the UK. Even better is that ExpressVPN is super fast, it works on your phone laptop, even your smart TV, so you can watch your shows on the big screen with zero buffering. So be smart. Stop paying full price for streaming services and only getting access to a fraction of their content. Get your money's worth at expressvpn.com slash spiked. Don't forget to use that special link so you can get three extra months for free. That's expressvpn.com slash spiked expressvpn.com slash spiked to learn more. Prince Harry and Meghan Markle will officially be severing their ties with the monarchy. After a year of attempting to carve out a semi-detached role within the royal family, both will have to relinquish a range of official titles, positions and patronages. Since the soft Mexit of 2020, Harry and Meghan have set up their own foundation in Beverly Hills, signed deals to make television for Netflix and podcasts for Spotify. Meghan has done voiceovers for Disney and has invested in a brand of wellness lattes. In March, the soon-to-be ex-royals are due to give an intimate and wide-ranging interview to Oprah Winfrey, which has been widely billed as a parting shot at the rest of the royals. Ella, what are your thoughts?
2: The whole Meghan and Harry situation opens up interesting questions about, not just about possibilities that we might, you know, as people who are interested in Brexit and democracy and bringing down the House of Lords and the Monarchy and all kinds of British institutions with it, perhaps see a possibility there for some kind of movement in terms of political change. But also because the way in which, in particular, People who would be sort of nominally liberal or maybe even lefty commentators have been so sycophantic about Meghan and Harry. I mean, there's even people, you know, talking sympathetically about the fact that how difficult it is that Harry will have to drop his military titles on the basis of this whole scandal. You know, because what? Because he did such a great job in Afghanistan. I mean,
1: Jesus, right in the thick of it, (laughs) as we all know.
2: (laughs) It's like, I can't believe it. The sort of glorification of these people is extreme. But I think the most important thing is that, to bring up the kind of women issue again, Meghan in particular has become a sort of untouchable Mary the Virgin like figure in which you cannot criticize her, despite the fact that she, in my opinion, is the most crafty operator, the best kind of manipulator. She's a grifter and fair play to her. She's got herself (laughs) a fantastic position. She's married a prince, got him to renounce his title, is loaded living in Beverly Hills and is going to have a great celebrity career ahead of her. Fine. But I don't have to like her any more than I like Gwyneth Paltrow or any more than I like any other or you know, Kim Kardashian or any other celebrity. And by the way, I didn't have to like her when she was a royal either. And yet, you know, from the kind of feminists writing in Galden magazine to news reporters on Sky News and BBC, it's like you can't call this woman out for what she is and you can't call Harry out for what he is, just this kind of like snivelling husband that can't say anything other than what is previously agreed before these press releases. And so you end up in a kind of rant against the monarchy, but I sort of feel like the shenanigans of Meghan and Harry, I think, have given me the confidence to fully come out and say that I'm not just anti-monarchy but in particular anti-this pair.
1: Tom? Well I think it's interesting how whenever Harry and Meghan are back in the news there's this kind of liberal left commentator take which is why are people so obsessed with them? Why do people find them so irritating? The kind of dot, dot, dot is always, it's because they're all racist, isn't yeah. it? Or something like this. But it's, it's because they're really fucking annoying. Like That's really <laughs> what it comes down to. And there's this level of entitlement as well, which is run mm. through this. It doesn't matter what you think about the monarchy. The idea that this pair, purely because they basically wanted to mouth off a bit more and because they wanted to turn themselves into some sort of semi-royal version of the Cloonies or the Obamas, wanted to leave the royal family, but keep a lot of the money, keep the titles, keep the patronages... Again, really fucking annoying. And this is the sort of thing which I, it's so striking, as Ella says, the extent to which people who claim to be Republicans, claim to be anti monarchy, have rallied around this pair and rallied around this pair who are increasingly becoming as ridiculous as a Gwyneth Paltrow. Yeah. And you just wonder what that's about. And it's, I think it's quite clear because really there's a lot of talk about how people who are kind of anti-woke have entered into a kind of culture war around Harry Harry and Meghan. I think the opposite is really the case. People have really clung onto them and defended this risible couple to the hilt despite doing a bit of throat clearing about wanting to get rid of the monarchy because of the fact that it's in their heads part of this kind of culture war because the British newspapers and the people who read them are horrible and racist and that's what's forced this otherwise lovely couple out of the country. It's been part of this kind of general post-brexit psychodrama really in terms of how particularly liberal left commentators relate to the rest of the public and in doing so they've hitched their wagon to a couple who are just ridiculous entitled as ella says kind of grifting Celebs. So when people say, you know, why are we people so obsessed with them? I think that's, or why are people so angry at them? I think that's pretty obvious. Why are people so desperate to defend them? Is something I have no idea whatsoever. But I think they've just constructed this whole narrative in their in their own heads as to why that's actually a noble cause to defend literal royalty at this point.
0: I think it's always very funny. I, I, you know, how people talk about Harry basically being the voice of Meghan and, you know, her being the kind of woke influence on him, which I mean, I, I suppose it's partly true, but I think one of my pet theories about this, this couple is that Harry has obviously done a lot wrong in the past. Let's say, you know, we all remember the days when he was a bit of a lad. He dressed up as a Nazi <laughs> when he was on tour in Afghanistan. He called his colleagues Packies. And now suddenly he's naked on the pool table in Las Vegas. (laughs) Vegas. Now suddenly, strangely enough, he's Mister Woke. He's Mister Feminist. He's Mister Green. You know, delivering lectures in his bare feet to Google executives, talking about climate change. And it's amazing because you know it speaks, I suppose, to the shallowness of this kind of woke politics that people just buy into that instantly. You just say a few key kind of words and phrases about institutional racism or systemic racism, and suddenly you're a good person, and everyone forgets everything else, and it all, you know... Fades away. I'm not saying we should Harry should be cancelled or anything like that. I'm not, I'm not going down down that path. But it is fascinating how easily he's he's managed to go from one image to the other, assisted by this new ideology of wokeness. And the other, you know, the other aspect we talked about a lot of times in this podcast. Whenever we talked about this couple, is just how easily this supposedly leftish ideology sits with the monarchy. It doesn't contradict it at all. Ella. Do you want to make a final point.
2: I completely agree, Fraser. And also, I mean, not to keep hammering home the fact, but that he is a royal. The royals have, particularly with kind of Wills and Kate being mouthpieces for sort of like earth parenting and climate change and all kinds of trendy fads now at the same time as you know turning up in nice dresses and a suit and shaking hands of people in hospitals and doing all the superficial things that royals do. The the monarchy is trying to I think be flexible it's obviously not flexible enough to fit the stardom of Meghan and Harry but the kind of lack of criticism for this couple is telling, and I mean, in particularly when it comes to the papers and the way that the tabloids have been slated for them. So, you know, I thought it was really funny when the Star put out that front page with the picture of them, with the pregnancy announcement, with their faces blacked out, saying "publicity shy woman tells 7.6 billion people I'm pregnant." You know, because <laughs> of the fact that Meghan, you know, won a case against the press—a a complete defeat for press freedom—on the basis of the letter that was published and you know you had feminists left and right saying doesn't anyone understand it's all about consent that celebrities or not that this woman shouldn't have been photographed or talked about without her consent and it's very different when she puts a picture on her Instagram well yes but it is also true that this woman Meghan Markle married a prince and you don't marry a prince without expecting some kind of scrutiny and some kind of interest and so the the sort of bad faith discussion of all of this and the sort of pretense that these are just normal people who happen to be going on Oprah Winfrey and happen to be absolutely loaded and happen to be able to waltz into, like you say, Fraser, boardrooms at Davos or have a finger in the pie of global networks. I mean, they're not normal people. And so they are not treated like normal people. That's what anyone who plays the game of fame understands. And so the kind of the pretense that Megan is sort of a figurehead for any kind of political movement, particularly around feminism, really grates with me because she's not like a normal woman. And she knows that she doesn't want to be like a normal woman otherwise they would have taken all their money and gone away and hid in Beverly Hills forevermore only popping out to go to kind of Whole Foods or whatever but they're not they're seeking fame and so whether it's the papers in America or the papers here have every right to mock them gossip about them and yes occasionally say potentially hurtful things because that's what happens when you're a celebrity we'll see how they handle it now that they're celebrities because the whole fact of being part of the monarchy is you have some level of protection because at least you know there are still some monarchists particularly in the UK who will you know defend you even if they really don't like you because they like the idea of the privacy of the monarchy but now you know all bets are off and we'll see what happens on Oprah Winfrey but I'm not holding my breath for any kind of great insights or interest out of this couple who you know have stripped away any kind of interest they have by leaving the monarchy and are now pretty dull run-of-the-mill b-listers living in Beverly Hills.
0: Thanks for listening to the Spike podcast. We'll be back next week. If you enjoyed the show, why not check out some of Spike's other podcasts in the meantime? We have the Brendan O'Neill show in which Spike's editor talks all about the big ideas, bad ideas, problems and controversies of life in the 21st century, all with the help of an esteemed guest. Then there's Culture Wars, hosted by Spike's columnist, stand-up comic and satirist Andrew Doyle, This monthly podcast is the perfect antidote to the woke idiocy taking over our lives. And last but not least, you should check out Last Orders, a podcast hosted by Tom Slater and Chris Snowden. Last Orders is all about freedom, the nanny state and censorship. And there's a lot about coronavirus these days too. You can listen to all these shows with your favourite podcast provider or you can find them on the Spiked website at spiked-online.com. Thanks for listening. See you next week.